Most people go to Sam's once a week. I go to there three to five times a week and sometimes every day. Pam and I live a mile north of the church uh, in the Ridgewood neighborhood, and there isn't a grocery store that's convenient to us on my way home, so I go to Sam's. Sometimes I walk in to get just get milk or bananas or apples or rotisserie chicken, or sometimes we need to load up like everyone else and get a bunch of stuff for community group. But we go there all the time. In fact, one of my favorite things going to Sam's over the last year or so has been taking my kids because while we shop, we look at stuff. I look away from my wife to say, sometimes we run around and play hide and seek. It's a fun thing to do in Sam's. And they often have samples and my kids sure like to eat samples. And when you go there as often as we do, you get to know everyone by name. Whether it's Miss Patty or Miss Pam or Miss Vicky who give out sap samples or Mr. Roger or Mr. Charles who check our receipts, whether it's Mr. Ibrahim or Mr. Abram who fixed our tires or any other of the number of folks we know there by name, we go there a lot. So now when I announce that I'm going to Sam's, all of the kids want to go with me every time. But this is what they say. They don't say, Dad, let's go to Sam's. Claire will say something like, Daddy, we get to see Miss Pam. Right? Kate will say, I hope Miss Vicky will be there. In fact, yesterday, as if she knew I was going to preach this, Claire asked me if she could write Miss Pam a note to say that she was thankful to see her back at work because she'd noticed she hadn't been there in a while. That was unprompted. My kids have learned a valuable lesson in us shopping at Sam's. That life is not about the places we go, but it's about the people we see. We'll see the same thing, the same theme developed as we open up the book of Acts this morning. As we continue on in our journey in the book of Acts, this morning we will be considering Paul's second missionary journey, which takes place in Acts 16, 17, and 18. Though I'll tell you from the beginning, we'll focus on chapter 16. If you've read through the book of Acts before, I'll give you some context. You might remember at the end of chapter 15 that Paul and Barnabas get into a quarrel about John Mark. Barnabas wants to take him with him. You might say take him with. But Paul says no. Mark had abandoned them on their first journey, so they decide to go in their own separate directions A reminder that God sometimes even uses conflict to divide his people, to spread his kingdom. So Barnabas and John Mark return to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas go back to Derbe, to Lystra, to Iconium, to Pisidian Antioch, and then to Troas. To Troas, when Paul receives the Macedonian vision, come over here and help us. So they head to Greece. They go to Philippi where Paul is imprisoned and then released. They go on to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Athens. While they're in Athens, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how they're doing. Timothy returns and then meets them in Corinth. Now that's the summary of the second missionary journey. And after that, Paul, and during that, Paul writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians just so that you can put all of that together. That's the story, that's the geography behind Acts 16, 17, and 18. 
And while it is of some important note that we consider that Paul goes back to places like Derby and Lystra, that he cared enough about the churches to revisit them, or that he cared enough about new places like Thessalonica or Athens, quickly you would find that the places are not the significant part. No, Paul was going for the people. That's the significant part. Because each one of those places was filled with people, some of whom were together and some of whom were broken. He went there for the people who needed to hear about Jesus. So as Luke is recording this, he doesn't just give us a missionary journey as a travel itinerary. No, he actually offers us something so much more powerful. He tells us story after story about people meeting Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look briefly at five of them. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were there in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So here we have Paul coming back to a place he's been before, In fact, he's been here twice. And in fact, it's altogether possible that Paul had even been introduced to Timothy's family. But it's this third trip now that Paul takes note of Timothy, a young man. A young man he would later write to and say, don't let people look down on you because you're so young. And Paul decides to invite Timothy into the mission. Now, we don't know whether Paul introduced Timothy to Jesus or whether his faith came through his grandmother Lois or his mother Eunice. We know their names because Paul references them in a letter to, in his second letter to Timothy. But we do know that Paul invites Timothy into his life in an extraordinary way. Paul invites him in to come under his wing and he calls him to be a disciple and to be a kingdom changer. Paul wants ask him to leave what he's doing and to come see what's happening for the name of Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. That in the middle of preaching and teaching about Jesus, that that wasn't Paul's exclusive ministry. No, in fact, the more effective ministry of Paul's life was inviting people in intentionally. That was the most effective part of his ministry. In fact, he discipled men in the same strategy as Jesus. We walk through the Gospels, you'd see Jesus constantly walking with a group. We walk into these missionary journeys, we see Paul traveling with a group of people, taking on the strategy of Jesus. The idea being that the means to reach the world is to reach individuals and to train them up to reach the world. So it becomes less about the impact on Timothy and more about the impact that Timothy could have. There's a beautiful passage in the Gospels that declares Jesus coming across Peter and giving him a nickname. He says, "Jesus, Peter, you will be the rock. 
The coolest part about that whole story is, is that Jesus has just met Peter and is already forecasting into Peter's life the potential and who he is and what he's going to become in the kingdom. For at that point, Peter might just think, I'm a rock, that I'm strong, that I'm steady. Jesus forecasts this. He sees a potential in him that exists. And that's what Paul does here with Timothy. He sees a means of ever-increasing gospel expansion. Consider this. We know extensive things about Timothy. We know that at one point he stopped traveling with Paul, and he becomes a pastor in the church at Ephesus, and then he faithfully pastors that church for quite a long time, receiving two letters that Paul wrote to encourage and exhort him. Timothy became quite a world changer. Are you familiar with the name Mordecai Ham? On 1930, in 1934, Dr. Mordecai Ham went to preach in a tent revival in Charlotte, North Carolina. And on that night, do you think he had any clue when a boy named Billy Graham came forward that the world would change? No, I think Dr. Mordecai Ham was being faithful to what God had called him to do with no clue about what would happen or the fruit that would come out of that. Just like Paul was being faithful and going to Derby and Lystra. Friends, I give you these examples because I want it before you that when you share the gospel with someone, you never know the fruit it can have. You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know who could be a missionary or who could be a church elder or who could be an evangelist. You don't know who you're talking to or the potential that God has for them in the kingdom. That's why Paul went. And as we look through these stories, you see these people in these different stages of life. It's not the same story over and over again. We find Timothy a young man, but it's not just him. We see God calling a variety of people and commissioning them into the kingdom. Let's pick up our second person in verse 9 and following. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, at first glance, there's nothing extraordinary about verse 10 until you pick up a nuance in the text. Let me read it more slowly for you this time. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought. We referenced this in our very first message on the book of Acts because this is an extraordinarily important we. For this is the first time in the book of Acts when the pronoun changes from they to we when the story becomes personal to Luke. Where Luke stops writing about what other people are doing and starts being the person encountering what's happening in his life. This is the point Luke joins the missionary journey here in Acts 16, verse 10. We don't know if Luke comes to faith in Troas. We don't know if he'd previously been a believer. We actually never know his testimony. But this we do know according to Colossians 4 that both he was a Gentile, that he didn't come from a godly family, that somewhere he learns the gospel, 
and that he was trained up as a doctor, which seems to suggest he's not a young man. Seems to suggest he's got some experience, he's got a job, he's got a practice, and yet God saves him and he gets invited into the journey. So not only do you see young men, you see old men coming into the faith, joining in Paul. By the way, Luke himself has quite a spiritual legacy. Writing the books of Luke and Acts, 27% of your New Testament. So you see, as the gospel is going out to these places, it's actually going to people, to real people, Real people with real names and real stories and people who really mattered. Because let's be frank about this. Without Jesus, these people would perish. And by perish, I literally mean they would go to hell. Friends, the book of Acts exists for us to have a mission before us. Because people matter. And Paul's journey was about going to those people because they matter. So we'll keep going, keeping in mind that we have a young man and an old man. And so now we have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke traveling, lest there be others that we know not of. Verse 11 will pick up our third character. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went down outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come there. Immediately from the text you'd pick up that there's not a synagogue in the town. That was always Paul's habit, but it's a place of prayer here. To not have a synagogue means you don't have ten Jewish men. That's all you needed to form a synagogue. So there's a place of prayer that's gathered, except at this place of prayer they show up and there are no men. Rather, there's a a group of women who've gathered, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged him, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come by my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So now we come to yet another place in the missionary journey. They've come into Macedonia. We come to Philippi, into a gathering of women where these men are coming to preach. And they come across a woman named Lydia. The text describes her as a woman of God which only means that she's aware of the God of Israel and she's seeking after Him. But on this day, she comes to know Jesus. And in fact, her whole family comes to know Jesus. Because this trip wasn't about a place, it was about a people. And this is Lydia's story. That a woman of great means, you know that because she owns a business selling things that happen to be purple. We take purple for granted without ever considering that a purple dye in that time would have been extraordinarily hard to get. You either caught a shellfish and pulled it out, or you dug up roots trying to find the purple ones. Either way, it's extraordinarily time-consuming, but she had the means not only to collect the purple, but to make things purple. 
all the little girls should be happy. She made a business of selling things that were purple. And they brought the gospel to her. So let's pause here for a moment and consider this. Do you have any idea how countercultural it would have been for this group of men to stop and meet with a group of women? I think in our day and age, we can't even conceive of how countercultural that was. We can't even conceive of Luke writing this story down, how countercultural it is that a woman shows up in our story. It says so much about what Jesus himself did to raise the cause of women and what he did with his disciples and asking them to raise the cause of women. Remember how the disciples were thrown off when Jesus met with a Samaritan woman. No doubt that's how many of these guys would have felt. But the gospel has changed them. In a culture where women are possessions, the gospel has declared that they matter and that they are significant. So here in verses 14 and 15, Lydia believes and then continues to have an important place, not only in the church at Philippi, but in the financial support of the early church. And that's extraordinary in and of itself. So now you have a young man, you have an old man, and now you have a woman who owns her own business and is probably a widow because she's inviting a large group of men to come stay at her house and this doesn't seem to be problematic. I called this message the together and the broken for exactly this moment. Because on this trip and in these stories, meeting these people, you might get the idea that the gospel or the mission is merely for the influential or for those who would lead a huge legacy. You might think it's for people like Timothy or Luke or women like Lydia. People who make a huge difference in the world. But it's not. And Luke wants to make sure you know it. Because as he's running you through these stories about the people that they run into in places, he now gives you the stories of two significantly broken people. Verse 16. As we're going to the place of prayer, we met, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So here on a journey, literally, to go all these cities... They stop on a journey to go to the place of prayer and they come across a demon-possessed slave girl. Now you'd be hard-pressed to imagine a better picture of a broken person than a demon-possessed slave girl. And yet when they come across her, immediately the demons within her recognize some things about these men. They recognize who they are and their mission. Never underestimate the enemy. He knows far more about you than you think. These men 
says the demon, are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now think about that for a moment. We have a demon-possessed slave girl testifying to the truth. The problem is that you have a demon-possessed slave girl testifying to the truth. So if you don't know the message, and you're in a city, and you've got a herald being somebody who's going before you proclaiming what you're up to, and your herald is a demon-possessed slave girl, immediately no one will listen to you. Because everyone will think whoever this demon is must be associated with the message you're given. How crafty of Satan to use the truth to distract people from the truth. But in the name of Jesus, Paul commands the demons out of her and they leave. We don't know much of her story. We don't know much of her story at all. Only that Jesus freed her, a demon-possessed slave girl. If there was anyone in this culture who wouldn't matter, not only was she a woman, but she is a slave and a woman, and she's a crazy demon-possessed slave girl, and yet Jesus notices her and frees her. Why? Because she matters. We have an old young man. We have an old man. We have an older woman. And now we have a demon-possessed slave girl all coming to know Jesus because the story is about people and not about places. The story continues with our owners bringing charges against Paul and Silas for disturbing the city and having them thrown in jail. One of the coolest things about jail in the New Testament is that jail is never merely a place. In the New Testament, even jail is a place full of people. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Think about that testimony for a minute that even when in jail... Now, the text has already told us they've been beaten. You have no idea how far they've been beaten. The crowd beat them. The the jailers beat them. And yet they sit there singing and praising God and everyone is listening. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. The more I read the Bible, the more i got to feel like Paul was comforted by things like earthquakes. Oh, it's the Lord. He's back. We're getting out of this. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Lest you think this is a normal earthquake, which just shook the room, this was an extraordinary earthquake that managed to open every cell door and see to it that the chains on each person were undone. That's an unusual earthquake. Verse 27, When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Think about that for a moment. Nobody runs. 
Nobody flees. You throw me in jail and an earthquake happens and my shackles come off, I'm praising the Lord on my way out of town. We are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And they took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Think about that story from beginning to end. Because it starts with, I'm beating you mercilessly. And it ends with table fellowship. It starts with a jailer put in charge of prisoners. For the purpose of punishing them. And it ends in table fellowship. Now there isn't a better picture of the extraordinary nature of the gospel than that. And there's certainly enough for here for us to preach. In fact, this whole passage we could have preached in like nine weeks about prisoners being set free or God's sovereignty over all things. But this morning, I want us to consider the jailer. Because the text tells us that Paul and Silas had already been beaten. And you can only imagine that this jailer was less than merciful in how he handles these matters. History suggests to us that jailers were often former soldiers who had been decorated and who'd been given these jobs as a congratulations, as a post-military career. So as a former soldier, who knows what this guy's been through? Who knows what he's seen? Who knows what he's walked through? Or who knows what he puts these prisoners through? All we know is in the middle of the night, there's an earthquake and everyone is set free. According to Roman law, a jailer who allowed a prisoner to escape would have been subject to the same punishment as the captured prisoner, which is to say this. This jailer wants to fall on a sword because he knows he'll be publicly executed. And yet, they all stay. Why? Because jail isn't merely a place. It's a people. The jailer mattered. We don't know what happens after this. The Bible doesn't tell us much more about the jailer. But you can only imagine he was the Chuck Colson of the early days starting prison ministry. You've got to imagine that jail changed significantly. Friends, as we look through these stories and we consider guys like a young man like a Timothy or an old man like a Luke or a Lydia and a successful woman or a demon-possessed slave girl or even a hardened jailer who all come to know Jesus, you start to see the importance of people and not merely places. Acts 16, 17, and 18 tell us lots of things about Paul's second missionary journey. But it also shows us the importance of people. Together people, broken people, 
People who the world would have thought everything was going for and people that the world would have known everything was falling apart for. It shows us people. People that Paul cared about and Silas cared about and that were taught Timothy to care about and Luke to care about. It's about people. So as we consider this text and consider how then do we live in 2017, can I admonish you in this direction? Move away from going to places and start moving to people. Move away from going to places and start going to people. Very few of you can I convince that we should move to Rwanda or Papua New Guinea. Very few of you are going to move elsewhere, save the cling biles who've got Oregon taken care of. So none of you can go there. And yet we're here. And we go places like Target and Walmart and Starbucks and any number of other places. Can I suggest to you that people matter? because they have souls, and because they have eternal destinies, that somehow people matter. And that your desire to walk into certain kinds of stores might be pre-wired into you so that you can reach a certain kind of people. That as you go places, pick up patterns and engage people. It's not an exceedingly hard challenge to do. But I'll tell you this, every time I decide to go to Sam's, it's Claire that reminds me why we're there. It's Claire that tells me, Ben, don't just get the bacon. Talk to Miss Vicky. Ask about her family. See how her husband's doing. It's my kids that put that challenge before you. Please know I didn't share the beginning story so you'd think I was awesome. I share you the story because I want you to know it's my kids that have to put before me That it's people that matter, not places. And if Paul on his way to Philippi, on his way to a prayer meeting, could stop and pay attention to a demon-possessed slave girl, which had to have taken way more time than my short interaction is going to take with a barista, then maybe as a believer in Jesus Christ, living in 2017, when I go on the journeys that are before me, be them Lowe's or Home Depot or the bowling alley, I might be mindful of the people. The souls that are before me. Because that's how your life intersects with the gospel. That's how your life in 2017, living in Fargo-Moorhead, interacts with Paul's second missionary journey. Because Paul was faithful about going to what God had put him going to all the places that God was sending him, and he was faithful about engaging all those people. So church, the question we have to deal with when we go to work, and when we come home into our happy little neighborhoods, and when we go to restaurants, and when we go to supermarkets, and when we buy coffee, is are we going to be faithful on the journey that God's put us on? Or are we going to wait for a special opportunity? Because the longer I'm in churches, the more I know that if we had like a a special, hey, let's wash cars, people would show up. Oh, good, I get to do my duty. Let's wash some cars. Let's paint something. 
But that's not the journey God has you on. The journey He has you on now is one of eating lunch and picking up coffee and buying groceries and picking up home goods so you can fix broken things in your house. He has you in a very normal place and He's surrounded you with very normal people, some of whom will be young like Timothy, some of whom will be old like Luke, some of whom will be very broken like a demon-possessed slave girl, and some of them will have their act together like Lydia. And yet, the Gospel calls us into those moments to recognize It's not the places that matter. It's the people. This doesn't have to be a huge start. I have an app on my phone I keep notes on. I cheat. If you've been around me much, let me just take the bag out. I'll come out from behind the sheep. I'm not that smart. I have a note on my phone. I keep track of all kinds of stuff. I have my wife's shoe size. I have my wife's ring size. I have all of her favorite drinks at restaurants in my note. Why? Because I can't remember any of them. I also have a note on the places I go and the people who work there. Because I want to remember. Because I want to keep the difference between Miss Pam and Miss Vicky really different. Because I don't want to ask Miss Pam about her husband. She's divorced. That'd be pretty insensitive. But I do want to ask her about her life. It's not taken me a lot of effort to get this way. It's the reality that I'm a moron. And God has graciously given me an iPhone. Now, He might have graciously given you a pad of paper. It's the same technology. Mine's just digital. To be mindful of the people that are around us. So church, I want to ask you and commission you into your lives. If you haven't picked up yet, that's the whole reason we're in the book of Acts. Because I wanted the gospel put before you over and over again so that you would be dripping with the gospel. And because I wanted you to know and to see that Jesus isn't merely about salvation. That it's not just God saving you and going, oh, look how great you are. But it's about reconciling you and making you a reconciler. That you would look and say, God has done something great in my life. Hey, can I tell you what God's done? Because you need this too. God could do great things with all of us. And so it would be put before you that it's normal people who've believed in Jesus, who've received the Holy Spirit, lest I have to quote passages back and forth to you over and over again, that have power to proclaim who He is. So friends, literally, If you've believed Jesus, that is you. You are the disciple. You are the kingdom builder. It's you that this book was written for. That you would take on these challenges and go, "Mm, let's do this. As a college student, I got involved in the ministry of young life. On Friday mornings, me and a group of, there was four of us, would go to Liberty High School. And we'd meet at about 10 o'clock, and we'd pray for about an hour in the parking lot. 
before we went into this high school, we'd meet a bunch of high school students. If you've ever met, gone in to do kind of evangelism work for high school students, they're, they're just as intimidating as when you were in high school. So I was always terrified. They're all going to think I'm weird. They probably did. But we would pray. And those prayer meetings are some of my most favorite prayer meetings to date because all we prayed for was that we would be bold and that we wouldn't care what people thought of us. And to this day, I always remember it because when we would say amen, we would be like, amen, yeah! Because you knew in praying that you had a mission to go forward in. You knew that you were being shot out. It was like coming out of a locker room for a football game. We've got something to do. Friends, that's a church. We gather together to build each other up, to edify each other. That's our mission statement. That we're a church that's building a community in Christ. We want you to know and understand who you are in Jesus Christ. Your identity in Christ so that we'd reach a community for Christ. That's why we gather. We'd be built up, encouraged, exhorted, and sent back out so that when we say amen, there'd be a moment for us. Paul recognized it was not the places that mattered. It was the people. And this morning, I want to exhort you to consider the people. And whether that's just picking the same grocery store lane to go through every week, wherever you go, or trying to be more mindful of your coworkers' names, it is a challenge each and every one of us can take. Let me pray for us. And when I say amen, if anyone grunts, I'll be giddy about it. So I'm encouraging loud grunts. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. That in it we find truth. In it we find exhortations and admonishments, Father. That we would see that our salvation is not merely about us being saved, but about us using, but you using us for your glory about us being a tool in Your hand to bring others to You. Father, I know and believe that each person in this room who's believed in You has power to be Your witnesses. Father, give us an ever-increasing knowledge of who we are in You and the mission You've put before us to declare Your name. Father, whether somebody's believed for 10 minutes or 50 years, Father, You can use anyone. Your Word declares in that. Thank You for saving young people like Timothy and old people like Luke. Thank You for saving people like Lydia who had her act together and broken, demolished people like this demon-possessed slave girl. Father, I pray that You would open up our eyes to people as we go places. That we would love them because You love them. Father, that we would recognize everywhere we walk that we're on the journey that You gave us. And that we would approach that with a desire to see Your name spread. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. (laughs) There we go.